We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. Well, let's take a look here at the Olivet Discourse that Charles kind of introduced us to. It's in Mark chapter 13. Uh, There are three great discourses, it is said, that Jesus gives. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The Upper Room Discourse, that is... uh, Uh, John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, then the high priestly prayer in 17, and the Olivet Discourse. It's Matthew 24, Mark chapter 13. Uh, They entail the three great offices of Jesus. In other words, his first great office is he is the prophet. He is the one that tells us exactly from the Old Testament what it means and who God is and who he is. And so that's the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it written, but I tell you, or you've heard it rather, you've heard it said, but I tell you, this is what the Bible means. He that builds his house upon my words, the storms will rise and it will stand. Whoever doesn't build it on my words, it's going to wash away. My word is the very word of God. That's the Sermon on the Mount. And then the upper room discourse, that's his role as priest the one who represents us before God and makes uh, us able and presentable to come before God. Hitherfore, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and it shall be given. Uh, That I go to prepare a place for you. That uh, uh, I'm going to let the Holy Spirit come upon you, and then you're going to do my work, and he'll convict the world of this, and you're going to go out for me. And so he's the one that makes us presentable before God and able to go out and represent him. He's our priest that comes before God for us. Prophet, priest, and then king, the one that rules us and ultimately will rule the world. During a few years ago, one of the fellows down in Dallas named uh, T.D. Jakes, I don't quote him for a whole lot of stuff, but I quote him for this. He made the statement about uh, something that the Supreme Court ruled, and he said, they've got their rules We've got ours because we've got our king, and they have their king. We have ours. And so that is the Olivet Discourse, Mark 13. He is our king, our prophet, our priest, our king. Sermon on the Mount, Upper Room Discourse, and the Olivet Discourse. It's called the Olivet Discourse because he's sitting on the Mount of Olives taking his last look at Jerusalem. And it's kind of an, an interesting text because it speaks past, present, and future. In the uh, Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it was said, I say to you, I'm going to clear up the past as to what you've heard. The present, he is our priest. That is, we go forth. He is the one who stands in the presence of God for us. And then our king, he's the one that we submit to now and we're looking forward to in the future when he shall return. Prophet, priest, king, past, present, future. The most important thing about any culture is what is true, you better have a prophet. And then uh, how do we approach God? You'd better have a priest. And then what is right and wrong and who rules us? And what is our hope? You better have a king. And so he fulfills all of those great roles, prophet, priest, king. You can stand from the New Testament and look backward to the Old Testament where he interprets it. You can look at where we are now and you can look at him who is to come. So he has got us 360, roundabout. And it's kind of an eerie chapter 
because he is going to sit down and tell them about things to come. Just like he saw it yesterday, he's going to just very simply tell us this is what is about to take place. It's kind of like uh, Marty, Michael J. Fox, or what's his name? Michael J. Fox, that's his name? Back to the Future, where he has come from another world, and he just sits down and tells you everything that's about to happen. And so, with that in mind, let's see what tomorrow's news is. When I get finished, like they say, you're not going to buy green bananas, okay? You're going to be ready for him to come. Well, in verse 1, he's going out of the temple, and one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, the Greek says, uh, how great the stones, how great the buildings. They see the outside decor. Jesus saw the inside, that you were like whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. And so he says about these buildings in verse 2, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Y'all know what happened to Jerusalem in 70 AD? It got torn down. There was a revolt led by the Pharisees against Rome. The Jews huddled up in Jerusalem and on Masada. Both were sieged. The nation was destroyed and taken away and deported into captivity and did not return until the mid-20th century. Uh, Jesus said in a parallel text in Matthew 23, he said, O Jerusalem, I wanted to gather you like a hen with her chicks, but you weren't willing your house, behold, is being left to you desolate. There's not going to be a Jew to be seen. And you will not see me again. Darkening, desolation, until you say, blessed is he who comes. That there's going to be a hope someday. But as for the future, you're about to disappear. And that is why all through the church age, there have been more Jews in Krakow and uh, Kiev and in uh, Toledo of uh, Spain than there have been in Jerusalem until the 20th century. And so, in verse 3 and following, sitting on the Mount of Olives, the, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew were questioning him in privately. Tell us, when will these things be? Meaning, when will these stones be overturned? Matthew Mark, don't speak to the, that answer about 70 AD. Luke does. So keep your finger right here and go a book over to Luke 21. And he explains it. In verse 20 and following, also the Olivet Discourse of Luke, he said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, Rome, recognize her desolation is near, 70 AD then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those in the midst of the city must leave. Those in the country must not enter the city. These are days of vengeance. The law of God says, if you turn from me and worship other gods, I will take you from the land that you are on. God did it in 586 when the Babylonians came, then the Medo-Persians, then the Romans, I'm sorry, then the Greeks and the Romans, they were out of the land like God said. And the law, these are days of vengeance. And then Moses said, God's going to raise up a prophet just like me someday. Whoever does not listen to his words shall be destroyed. Well, here is the final prophet. 
and he was spurned. And so just like God says, these are days of retribution. And so all things written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and nursing babes in those days. You remember when Jesus was going to the cross, the women of Jerusalem wept. He said, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves because it's coming. He said, if they do this in the green tree, what will they do in the dry? If they do this over a living man and a righteous man, what are they, what's going to happen to a dry and a dead nation? If this bad stuff happens to me, you don't want to see what's going to happen to you. And in verse 24, they will fall, I'm sorry, 23, there will be great distress upon the land, wrath to this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword, be led captive into all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There Jesus coins a phrase, the times of the Gentiles, when Israel no longer is a sovereign and free state. It began with Nebuchadnezzar 586, then it went to the Medo-Persians, then it went to the Greeks, and then it went to the Romans. He came at their lowest point, they rejected him. 70 AD took place and they have been outside the nation until just the 20th century, but still they do not have their temple, they do not have their priesthood, they do not have their worship. They are influenced and ruled to a great degree by the nations, uh, and that will continue through what we're going to see here, the tribulation period, and it will end at the return of Christ when the King has come. Amen? You notice how heaven responds whenever I <laughs> say, that's just, it's just the way my preaching is. It's, it's, I've never understood it. Myself. And so, in verse 4, when will, what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Verse 5 and following is going to talk about all these things. All these things fulfilled is the kingdom of God. 70 AD is a very bad time. When will, what's going to happen here? That's very bad. When all things are going to be fulfilled, that is very good. That is the hope of Israel. Frederick the Great, who was an agnostic, was once asked by his court chaplain, sire, uh, rather, yeah, Frederick the Great said to him, to the court chaplain, prove to me that the Bible is true. And he said, one word, sire, Israel. We have no other answer for Israel than they are in covenant with God. You cannot destroy a nation and bring it back. God's done that to Israel three times and brought them back. And so, and he's about to do it for the fourth. And so, in verse 4, when will these things be fulfilled? Incidentally, if you can back up, you're seeing he's talking about 70 AD and then the end of times. From the beginning of Israel's dispersion to the end of their regathering. From the Alpha to the Omega. Something very bad, something very good in between 70 and the return of Christ. What has God been doing for 20 centuries? It's the church age. It's you. It's you. That he has taken the Messiah, the covenant, the promise of the Holy Spirit, and the privilege to be a nation of priests. And he has given it. Deuteronomy 32 says, you made me jealous by what is not a God. I will make you jealous, Israel, by what is not a people and by a stupid nation will I anger you. God said, I'm going to sit the blue chips down, and I'm going to put the cow chips in, and that's you. 
And so what has God been doing in the mystery between the cross and the crown? It's you. And it's the phenomena of the church. They said to Jesus, by whose authority do you do these things? Jesus said, tear down this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. That's whose authority, the authority of God. And they said, it took 46 years to rebuild this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days? But this he spake of his body. His body was like a temple that was torn down and raised up anew. A new temple raised up. What is the temple today? The body of Christ. Isn't that amazing? He said that in John uh, chapter 1. No, John 2. Way back at the beginning of his ministry. And so, temple of God. Let's take a look. He's going to use the word in five and following you, speaking to the disciples. It is obviously not simply the twelve because much of the events of chapter 13 are going to happen at a time that has not yet occurred, and the apostles are obviously gone. He is speaking you, not to them as Christians, but he's speaking to them as the believing remnant of Israel. Someday, when all of this happens, this is how you need to respond, the believing remnant. Christ treats the twelve as what a Jew should be, what a Jew, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, was, and what a Jew shall be someday. So he sees them as the representative remnant of Israel. And let's see, verse 5. We're going to see an overview here of the first three and a half years of the tribulation. It's a seven-year period. It's broken down into the tribulation and then the great tribulation. And so in 5 through 8, if you look at verse 8, how he ends verse 8, this is the beginning of birth pangs. That's the first three and a half years. Any of you ladies ever been through birth pangs? Uh, did it feel like the judgment of God? Well, let me tell you, that's the way it is. Uh, the pangs come like a thief in the night, usually at 3 a.m. when all children are born. At least mine were. And so it hits you at a, in the, when you're not ready, and the pains begin, and they get stronger, and they get faster and faster and faster and more intense until life comes forth. That's a baby, all right. And so life comes forth. And that's what's going to happen. The tribulation is going to begin and it will end in Revelation 19 when the skies roll back like a scroll and the Lord descends. It's going to be a new day when life is brought into the world. And so verse 5 through 7 are the beginning of birth pangs. In verse 5 or verse 6, many will come in my name saying, I am he and will mislead many. Write down the term Antichrist. He's the one that's going to kick off the tribulation. When Israel makes a covenant with a pagan and puts their trust in him that they were never in the Old Testament to do was to covenant with a pagan. But they do. Uh, and after that, in verse 5, you will hear of war and rumors of war. Write down the term war. Don't be frightened. Those things must take place. That's not the end. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famine. That's what follows. War is famine. So write down famine. And then there will be earthquakes, 
write down death. Now, if you know your book of Revelation, that sounds familiar. Antichrist, war, famine, death. Have y'all ever heard of the four horsemen of the apocalypse? They're not from Notre Dame, like Grant and Rice said. They are from the book of Revelation. Uh, let me show you. Keep your finger there and look at Revelation chapter 6. The tribulation begins in chapter 6 of Revelation. The churches are mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3. And then in chapter 4, God says, come up here. And that represents the rapture. And then in 6 through 18, you never see the word church mentioned because you're not here. Are you glad? You're not here. But what nation is central in Revelation 6 through 18? The tribulation is Israel. And so in chapter 6, there the tribulation begins. You see verse 1. At the last word of verse 1, God says, come. Evil cannot occur on earth unless God allows it. Amen? What large Old Testament book just has three letters, sounds like ob. <laughs> Do you see Satan wanting to act, but he can't until God lets him? What book? Job. Satan can never act. Peter, he has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. And so he can't unless God says. So the tribulation begins with the permission of God. Come, sick him. And in verse 2, I looked and behold a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow. A crown was given to him and he went out to conquer. Two guys in the book of Revelation have a crown, sit on a white horse and go forth to conquer. One is Jesus Christ in Revelation 19 and the other is this guy. Now I'll give you a hint. He's not Christ. He is against Christ and in the place of Christ. You know what prefix you use in the Greek? for against and in the place of? Anti. This is anti-Christ. He's the one that begins the tribulation period. If you want to take some time when you go home, look at Daniel 9, 27. The tribulation period of seven periods begin when he makes a covenant with Israel for seven years and allows them to rebuild the temple and to conduct temple service. He will be on the front of Newsweek. He will be the time man of the year. He will look like the Prince of Peace that just exerts his power over the Middle East and says this is the way it will be because he's a man that will gain ascendancy over the mightiest power of the earth of a revived ten-nation power in Europe, a revival of Rome, and he's going to gain power. Uh, you can probably see it coming, but you're not going to be here, so don't worry about it. And so he says, come. And so we see Antichrist in verse 2. And then in verse 3, he says, come. And there's another red horse went out to take peace from the earth. So there is war. And then in verse 6, there is a, a horse that is a black horse. He who sat on it has a pair of scales. We see enormous inflation when food cannot be bought. You have famine. And then in verse 7 and 8, you have death, an ashen horse. Also a great Clint Eastwood movie. All right. Did y'all ever see that? Pale Rider? Never mind. In verse 8, death and Hades was following him, and authority was given him over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, famine, pestilence, 
wild beast of the earth. You have death. Antichrist, famine, I'm sorry. Antichrist, war, famine that results, and then death that results. The four horsemen. Where did you see that? Mark chapter 13. You saw it in verse 6, Antichrist. Verse 7, war. Verse 8, famine. Uh, verse 8, death. The four horsemen. Uh, now, something may confuse you here. Many will come saying, I am he. Some have thought, and, I, and there's room for this, that even though verse 6 talks about the beginning of the tribulation, that the tribulation will be an official beginning as a judgment upon what has been a process all through the years. Uh, all the way until the tribulation, there will be a liar and the father of lies that opposes and replaces Jesus Christ with the ideas of man. Would you agree? That's been the story of history. And that is why in 1 John, I want you to see this. John wrote late. He wrote in like 90 AD. If you'll look at 1 John chapter 4, In 1 John 4, error was going out at this time called the Gnostic heresy, the first official replacement of Christianity and the first blasphemy against Christ, saying that he was not the son of God and he really wasn't a man, just an appearance as a man. And he says in verse 4, don't believe every spirit, test the spirits, meaning that which is behind a man, that which innervates a man to preach. It's either God or it's Satan. Test the spirits. Listen to what they say. Compare it to the Bible. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. He's speaking here in the, uh, uh, in the present tense. In his day, we've already got an anti-Christ system out there. In verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit or preacher or teacher that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. That he is God who has come and that he is a man the God-man. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus as the incarnation of God is not from God. This is the, or this is of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, future day. There is going to be a person who calls himself Christ, but he isn't. But he says, already the spirit of Antichrist, you've heard it is coming, it's now already in the world all the way from 90 AD. All of us, in some sense, came to believe in Christ. Uh, not simply because we read our Old Testament and were brought to the knowledge of Jesus, but as a Gentile in the world, you came out of a false system. Who was born in the 50s and 60s? God help you, all right? You came out of a false system. If you came out of a works theology, if you came out of a liberalism that denied the efficacy of Christ's death and merely made him a social gospel, that was a lie, that was an antichrist, it stood against him. If you came from some place that had to earn your way to heaven by the taking of sacraments, if you were a universalist that did not believe that God would condemn anybody, you came out of a false system. Francis Schaeffer felt that this verse 
uh, many will come in my name, was a reflection on the previous 20 centuries of humanistic philosophy, that men will come up with their own system that does not involve God. And so Christ is going to be one of many. And yet, the spirit of Antichrist, you've heard, it is coming. There's going to be someday one man that Revelation uh, 13, Satan will give all of his authority to. Well, let's go back here to Mark chapter 13. Uh, here comes Antichrist. Now, I'm going to show you something else that will help you with something. If you'll take a look at the leading verses in the New Testament prior to Revelation about Antichrist, he is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. When Paul was in Thessalonica, he was there for three weeks, and after he left, tribulation became great. And they thought that the tribulation had already begun. And Paul said, no, it hasn't begun. For one reason, you're still here. But he's going to tell you in 2 Thessalonians 2, the chief verses about the Antichrist. We request of you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering together to him. Now, this is talking about not the coming of Christ with his church, Revelation 19, but the coming of Christ for his church. If I go away, I'll come again, receive you to myself. The dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who are alive shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. In the twinkling of an eye, this corruption shall put on uncorruption. We will not all die, but we will all be changed. The Greek word is cool. Isn't that cool? We will not all die, but we will all be changed. In the twinkling of an eye. What event are we talking about here? Our gathering together to him. Sounds like apture. Starts with an R. It's the rapture. The harpazo is the Greek word. It means pluck. The guy that has an instrument that he plucks. What's that called? Harp. Who are the wicked women that descend and grab men and drag them off screaming to their death? Harpies. You're looking amazed, Dawn. It's not a sorority. All right. Yeah, there's a group of women that do that. The harpies come down, snatch men, haul them off and consume them. So, that's what the rapture is. It's the harpazo, the plucking of the church. Or if you put it in Latin, the enrapting of the church. Okay? And so, in verse 2, with regard to the rapture, don't be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed as if by a spirit, a message, or a letter, as if from us, it's called a pseudepigrapha, a false letter, to the effect the day of the Lord, the rapture, or the tribulation has come. The rapture will kick off the tribulation. They were saying to the Thessalonian Christians, the tribulation has already come. And you're in the middle of it. And Paul's words were not true that you will be delivered from the wrath to come. Verse 3, let no one in any way deceive you. The teaching that a Christian will go through the wrath of God. And remember this, the tribulation period is not a time of persecution merely. It's a time of the wrath of God. When God shows his wrath on the old world, who does he have to wait to get into the ark? Go ahead. Noah and all of the chosen animals that God has drawn to him. 
Whenever Sodom and Gomorrah gets destroyed, who has to be removed and put away safe and sound? Lot. We're not going to put the child of God through the wrath of God. Uh, the widow of Zarephath had to be removed by, uh, by uh, no, no, no. The, widow, the, the woman of Shunem removed by Elisha so that when wrath came, she would be apart from it. And so all the way through the Bible, Rahab the harlot has to be outside the judgment in the walls of the city to be kept for Jericho to fall. Now, God keeps us from the wrath to come. His wrath has already been visited on us in the death of Christ, and we will not go through it again. And so, to say that we are going to go through it, according to Paul, is deception. Let no one deceive you. It will not come unless three things happen. Number one, the apostasy must come first. There must be a rejection of the gospel message that is the final act of mercy before his coming. This is it. Uh, Paul put it like this. God has commanded men everywhere to repent, having fixed a day when he will judge the world through a man, Jesus Christ, having furnished proof to all men and that he has raised him from the dead. This is a period where God is calling the men, the world, to faith and telling them there's going to be a sequel called the judgment of God. And he has furnished proof in the resurrection, the fulfilled Bible, and he has fixed a day in which this period is going to end. It's going to end because the world will officially reject the grace of God. As a matter of fact, buddy, did you ever have S.L. Johnson near at seminary? He used to feel, because of a text in Timothy, which was Paul's legate that would carry on his work, he said, Timothy, in the latter days, difficult times will come, for men will pay attention to the doctrine of demons. He felt that the latter days would be a worldwide rejection of the monotheistic Judeo-Christian man in the image of God idea, that man would put himself in the place of God. He would call it secular humanism, the, the death of man, man from Nietzsche, Marx, and Darwin on, where man determines what man is. And so he felt that with that, it would precipitate the coming of Christ, that the world has officially rejected him. And so there will be apostasy that it comes first. Do y'all think we're getting close? Yeah. And then secondly, verse 3, the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction. There's going to be the Antichrist. A man who is lawless, he does not acknowledge God. He makes himself God because in verse 4, he exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God. Now, wait a minute just a second. Didn't we say in a verse earlier that the temple will be torn down? We did. So how does Antichrist take his seat in the temple of God? It assumes that the Jewish temple will be rebuilt someday. Daniel 9, 27, Antichrist covenants with the many for one seven-year period to continue worship and sacrifice. He will say to Israel, the temple mount is yours. And so he will be seen as a savior. And so, and incidentally, this assumes also that there's going to be a regathering of Israel. 
If you had preached this in the 12th century, you'd have been seen as insane. But this assumes that Israel is going to be back, that the world is going to be godless, that a man is going to arise that the world will trust completely, and he will covenant with the nation of Israel and present himself as the Savior, and they will rebuild their temple once again. Now, if you had interpreted this literally in the 12th century, people would have thought you're nuts. Now you look kind of smart. From 1948 on, we have a nation of Israel. We do have a rising power in Europe that someday a man could take over and have all authority. Uh, the power that is in the West has rapidly begun to recede. Amen? Yeah. And so now this looks real smart. That is why prior to the 20th century, amillennialism that did not hold to a literal kingdom was preached from the 20th century on. Premillennialism, the literal interpretation of these texts, is now in vogue. Why? You have an Israel, you have a united Europe trying to come together, you have a falling of the power of the West, and you now have the coming uh, the, the, of a person that can now take a revived nation and let them once again build a temple. So we're getting close. And so in verse 4, he will take his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as God. He's going to violate his covenant with Israel and make himself like Nebuchadnezzar of old, God. And if you do not worship him, you will die. You must bear his mark. That means man replacing God. Six, six, six. Three, the number of the Trinity. Six, the day of man's creation. Man replaces God. What was Satan's argument in the Garden of Eden? Ye shall be as God. And so... This is Satan's favorite text. He's memorized it in 27 responses. You know that? This is when he finally gets his, he thinks. And so Paul says in verse 5, Do you not remember while I was with you? He was there for three weeks. I was teaching you these things. Do y'all think this is pretty deep? Paul taught it to baby Christians within three weeks of their conversion. Shame on you. So let's go back to Mark chapter 13. And so we have here... The uh, overview of the first three and a half years. A man's going to come. A temple's going to be rebuilt. A nation's going to covenant. And then judgment will fall. War. Famine. Death. In verse 9, we begin now the, the overview of the last three and a half years. Be on your guard. Speaking to the 12 as those of that day, they will deliver you to the courts. You'll be flogged in the synagogues. You'll stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. Now, those words are reminiscent of what Christ in Matthew 10 spoke to the 12. It's simply that there is a great similarity between the conduct of the apostles in the first century and the conduct of the believing Jew in the tribulation. This is what the people of God do. They preach the gospel where they are, and they preach it to the whole world. That's what they did. That's what these will do. And so in verse 9, the believers in God in Israel will finally assume their position as a kingdom of priests. Finally, the Abrahamic covenant will come into vogue. 
ye shall be a blessing. And the one who blesses you will I bless. The one who curses you will I curse. Finally, Israel will enter into their sonship. Uh, and in verse 10, uh, this is why they will suffer, because the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. The word of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, that Christ is Lord and he is coming. We killed the wrong man. It's going to be preached to all of the nations. Let me show you something. Look at Revelation 6 once again. In Revelation 6, in verse 1 and 2, a judgment goes out to shut down the four winds that's going to bring about enormous famine when the winds don't blow. In verse 3, do not harm the earth, the sea, the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of God. Before the judgment comes, God says to an angel, I need a mark of belief on all of the faithful so they will be kept. Incidentally, who's the guy that wrote the book, Left Behind? Tim LaHaye. I spoke with him a number of years ago at a conference, and he did an interesting message on the mercy of God during the tribulation. Here God is protecting his believing people, just like Israel in the wilderness coming to Egypt. And so no judgment will fall on them. And in verse 4 through verse 8, who are these bondservants of God? Scan verse 4 through verse 8. They are the 12 tribes of Israel. They will be gathered. And God from each tribe will take 12,000 as one man said, there'll be 12,000 Billy Grahams, Jewish Billy Grahams preaching all over the world, just like the 12th did once upon a time, just like the 12 nations were supposed to do once upon a time in David's day. Someday, the 12 tribes will preach, finally. And in verse 9, this is what will come from it. Then I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation, all tribes, all peoples, and all tongues, standing before the throne. And they're worshiping. And in verse 13, one of the elders of heaven says, who are these guys? And he says in verse 14, they are those that have come out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. They're believing Gentiles who have been killed for their faith in Christ. Question, how did all of these believing Gentiles hear the message of Israel's Messiah, verse 4 through verse 8, the preaching of Israel. You're saying to me, Tom, it sounds like in the tribulation, it's a whole lot reminiscent of the church age that began with the 12 of Israel and went to the whole world. Yes, it is. And so you will see someday Israel converted, Israel preaching, and Gentiles responding. And what's going to happen when they respond? They, in verse 14, will suffer death. It's a whole lot easier to become a Christian now than it will be then. And so, go back here to verse 9 of Mark 13. And so, in verse 9, you will see the preaching of Israel, verse 10, the conversion of those in and out of the entire nations. And in verse 11, 
when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry. There will be persecution upon believers because, and here's why, they will not accept the authority of this man who has made himself God. Uh, it's called hate speech. They will use hate speech. They will say that he is wrong, man is a sinner, and this guy is going to be judged. And so they are imprisoned for their freedom of speech. Could that ever happen? Well, in verse 12, the nation of Israel will be purified. Brother will betray brother to death, a father his child. The children will rise against parents and have them put to death. You'll be hated by all because of my name, that it will be a time of purification of Israel. He that loves father, mother, sister, brother more than me, even his own life is not worthy to be my disciple. And so Israel will be uh, purified. As a matter of fact, verse uh, 12 could very easily be cross-referenced as Micah chapter 7, verse 6 that occurs in the tribulation period. But in verse 13, how can you tell the true believer, the one who endures, always the one who endures, and he will endure till the end? Are you saying to me the tribulation will have an end period? Yes, it will. So, 5 through 8, the beginning of birth pains. 9 through 13, an overview, a converted Israel preaching to a converted group of Gentiles, tested by pain. In verse 14, we have now what is called the specifics of the last three and a half years. When you see verse 14 occur, take off running. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be. You remember that text that I read to you from 2 Thessalonians? Antichrist will take his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as God. Jesus said, when you see that, the abomination of desolation is a term used three times in the book of Daniel, twice about the Messiah, I'm sorry, about the Antichrist, and once about a guy that prefigured the Antichrist. Have y'all ever heard of the feast of Hanukkah? It came whenever the Greeks oppressed the Jews and a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus the Great, whenever he took a pig and killed it and threw its guts all over the rebuilt temple during the, mid, during the intertestamental period. Whenever he threw pig guts all over the Holy of Holies and then he put a statue of Zeus in the temple to be worshiped. That was called in Daniel, the abomination that brings desolation. It's idolatry and he's gonna kill everyone who doesn't bow. And there was a guy that responded against it named Judas Maccabees his father Matthias and then Judas Maccabees and they began the Maccabean revolt and cleansed the temple. And it took 14 days to light the temple for purification. They didn't have enough oil. They just trusted God that he would let oil burn where there was no oil and it did for 14 days. And so they celebrate the Feast of Lights that is called Hanukkah where the temple was purified on December the 25th. We have a very famous day ourselves for that. And so... In this overview, when you see Antichrist standing where he shouldn't be, then in verse 15, you need to take off. The one who is in the housetop must not go down. 
nor go get anything out of the house. The ones who are in the field must not turn back to get his coat. Woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babies in those days. Pray it won't happen in winter. It'll be a time of tribulation that has not occurred since the beginning of creation, which God created until now, that you will see an intensity of judgments, death in an enormous proportion. You will have the scope of judgments, will be worldwide and cataclysm such as we have never seen and then you will see the nature of judgments that they will involve the demonic. It's like God says, you want the devil, I'll give you the devil. And so, he says, when this happens, you need to take off running. Incidentally, when you get home, take your Bible and look at Revelation 12. And it shows a lady of light with the sun, moon, and stars illumining her. And she's pregnant. And she's going to give birth to a child that is gonna rule the nations with a rod of iron. Who is the lady of light with 12 stars? It's Israel. And she gives birth to a child who's gonna rule the nation. Who's that? Jesus. And when she gives birth, there's a dragon waiting right outside her womb to consume him. And that is Satan who wants him dead. When Christ was born, there was a Roman right outside the womb, Herod, that wanted him dead. And it said, but the child will be caught up to heaven and will sit in the Father's right hand. Christ will victor over him. And then it says this, that the serpent or the dragon was enraged because he had lost the key man. And he went off to make war against the children of the woman. And they fled into the wilderness for three and a half years where they were nourished by God. Question, who are the children of the woman that believe in Christ that will now flee to the wilderness to be kept? It is believing Israel. You want to see something interesting? It says God will give them wings of an eagle, supernatural to get away. Those that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up their wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary, walk and not faint. And so they will escape. And then it says, the dragon will pour water from his mouth like a flood to eradicate them. And the earth will open up and swallow it. God will hide them in a hiding place. Historically, it's been held that the hiding place of the Jews will be east of the Jordan and Petra. You ever been to Petra? That's where always the uh, tradition has been. But God will protect them. Was there a time in Israel's history that he also protected a people in the wilderness, the Jews on the Exodus. Did God protect David in the wilderness when Saul was looking for him? Yes. Did he protect Elisha when the king was looking for him and Elisha? He did. And so God can protect you. And then when he can't kill the Jews, it says in Revelation 12 that the dragon will go away in a rage to make war against the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Who are the rest of the children, the believing Gentiles that have now been grafted into the rich root of Israel? So that's Revelation chapter 12. See also Mark 13. Christ is right in keeping with the prophetic scenario. And it tells you that in verse 20, God will bring an end to this. Unless the Lord had shortened those days no life would have been saved. 
This is a period of history that it would have been the complete holocaust of man. You can only imagine something like nuclear war where such a massive amount would be killed. And it says, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. It says in the book of Isaiah that when Messiah returns, man will be as scarce as the gold of Ophir. There may not be 10,000 people on planet Earth. You ever watch that great Christian narrative called uh, The Walking Dead? I'm just kidding. It's where you can't find any humans out there, you know. They're so sparse. In verse 21, whenever he ends the days, this is how he's going to do it. It's going to be by the second coming. Christ not coming for his church, but coming with his church. Revelation 19. If anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or he is there, don't believe him. False Christ and false prophets will arise and show signs and wonders if, or in order to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. But take heed. I have told you everything in advance. You have eschatology and prophecy. You know how it's going to end. So you don't have to get led astray. That's why Revelation says seven times, blessed is he who reads these words. And in verse 24, here is how it will end. It's not going to be that Christ will come in verse 21 in a private showing over here or over there. No, in those days after the tribulation, now it's all over, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers in the heavens will be shaken. You will not be able to see the lesser lights because in verse 27 or 26, the greater light shall appear. Where do the stars go in the daytime? They're right where they are, and you can't see them for the sun. And so in verse 26, it says in Zechariah, it'll be a unique day such as never occurred. The Son of Man is coming in clouds from heaven with great power and glory, and in 27, with the angelic host. One angel will throw fear into a man. This is the heavenly host. Uh, to look upon Christ... Uh, John fell like a dead man. This is fearsome to look upon him. What will it look like to see the heavenly host, the heavens opened, and to see this being descend? You understand now why men will say to the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of him who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. And in verse 27, he will then send forth the angels to gather his elect from the four winds. I want to show you something. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 30. And this is what he is referring to. This is called the Palestinian covenant. When Israel got ready to go into the land of Canaan with that next generation, and Moses says to them in verse 1, when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse that I set before you, and you call them to mind in the nations where the Lord your God has banished you. Question, did that happen? Yes, it did. Happened a couple of times. And you return to the Lord your God and obey him. You repent and turn back to me. Verse three, the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. See also Mark chapter 13, 
He will send forth the angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. I will gather you. And he will bring you back, and the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed. Y'all remember the Abrahamic covenant? Abraham, I'm going to give you land. God remembers that covenant. And you will possess it, and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. God said to Abraham, I will give you land, and I will give you a great seed. So God fulfills the seed portion. And then in verse 6, and he will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul that you may live. There will be the rebirth of Israel in a new covenant as he promised to Abraham. I will give you land, I will give you seed, and I will be a blessing to you. And then in verse 7, I will judge your enemies. I will inflict these curses on your enemies and those who hate you. Nine, he will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hands. Has this text been completely fulfilled? It has not. We're waiting for the return of Christ. Now, that is why if you go to Revelation 6 through 18, the word church is not mentioned. We are not here. We are the mystery of God's program to protect his truth right now, to present the life of God in our lives, to preach the truth, and to be light and salt to a fallen world by the Christian worldview. Someday our task will be over, and the last words you will hear will be, come up here, and we'll go home. Let's remember him in communion. Father in heaven, we thank you for these words that you have not left us in the dark. And Lord, we pray that uh, each day we might become more and more consecrated to what will happen, that our hearts could belong to you because we see what will happen to this Babylon of the world, that it will fall. As you say in Peter, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. But according to his promise, we're looking for new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Be with us so in the meantime. And as we reflect upon the sufficiency of your death, of you who said, uh, this is my body and this is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me until you come. Do this in memory of me to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.